0: hello everybody and welcome to season two episode 11 of spiritual psychotherapy so first let's just arrive here arrive now if you're here in person or on zoom or if you're listening to the podcast just arrive where you are so This past week, I was able to listen to, in the past couple of weeks, some of Jon Kabat-Zinn's book, Uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are. Uh, Really beautiful book about mindfulness. I'm in the the beginning of it, but a couple of quotes that that really struck me from him. He says, when I was a student, it drove my family and friends crazy. Sorry, when I was a, a, a Buddhist student, he's saying. But when I'm a Buddha... Nobody's upset at all, right? So when we go around telling everybody, oh, I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Buddhist student and we're seeking some kind of validation about this or if we're seeking some kind of praise about this, that's the kind of thing that's going to drive everybody crazy. But the point of Buddhism is not to be a Buddhist student. It's to realize right now that you already are the Buddha. And when you sit in meditation, like we always say, in terms of trying to polish that brick into a mirror, that's never going to happen. The point is not to become something, but rather to realize that while you sit in meditation, that's just how the Buddha is sitting right now. As Alan Watts would say, if you're whatever you're doing, just do that mindfully. Mindfully, if you're smoking a pipe, just smoke the pipe. Um, And he says another beautiful thing, a meditation means learning how to get out of this torrent, sit by its bank, listen to it, learn from it. So it's the ability just to step outside, to step outside of the torrent of the river of life and just to be present and just to notice almost as if you're sitting on the outside of it. And then he he actually references this story about Huenang, uh, that I think is is really uh, a, an amazing story because in a lot of ways it, it tells all of our stories. So I'd like to read with you uh, the story of this guy Huenang. Um, he lived, uh, I think, let's see what year it was. Um, he lived uh, from February 638 CE till August of 713 CE, so about 1,500 years ago. Uh, and, you know, this is from well-known documentation of Huineng's life. So according to Huineng's autobiography in the Platform Sutra, Huenang's father was from Fanyang, uh, but he was banished from his government position and died at a young age. So Huineng was orphaned at a pretty young age. Huenang and his mother were left in poverty and moved to Nanhai, where Huenang sold firewood to support his family. One day, Huenang delivered firewood to a customer's shop where he met a man reciting the Diamond Sutra. And we've referenced the Diamond Sutra here before. It's an amazing conversation between the Buddha and his student about the diamond that cuts through illusion. So it says, on hearing the words of... My mind opened up, and I understood. He inquired about the reason that the Diamond Sutra was chanted, and the person stated that he came from the Eastern Meditation Monastery in a certain district of the province of Chi, where the fifth patriarch of Zen lived and delivered his teachings. Kuenang's customer paid his ten silver tails and suggested that he meet the fifth patriarch of Zen. So because he was so excited about this, they said, you know what, we're going to fund you to go and meet this Zen patriarch. So Huynang reached uh, Huangmei 30 days later and expressed to the fifth patriarch his specific request of attaining Buddhahood. Since Huynang came from Guangdong and was physically distinctive from the local northern Chinese, the fifth patriarch, Hungren questioned his origin as a barbarian from the south and doubted his ability to attain enlightenment. So it's like, yo, what do you know? You, you have no capability of being like us, of being enlightened. Huenang impressed Hungran with a clear understanding of the ubiquitous Buddha nature in everyone and convinced Hungran to, to let him stay. The first chapter of the Ming Canon uh, of the Platform Sutra describes the introduction of Huenang to Hungran as follows. All right. so this is their conversation. The patriarch asked me, who are you and what do you seek? I replied, says Huenang, your disciple is a commoner from Xin of Lingnan. I have traveled far to pay homage to you and seek nothing other than Buddhahood. Ah, so you're from Lingnan and a barbarian. How can you expect to become a Buddha? Asked the patriarch. I replied, although people exist as northerners and southerners, in the Buddha nature, there is neither north nor south. A barbarian differs from your holiness physically, but what difference is there in our Buddha nature? Huenang was told to split firewood and pound rice in the backyard of the monastery and avoid going to the main hall. So they said, we'll let you stay, but you're going to have to be like Cinderella in a way. You know, stay in the back and uh, don't let anybody see you and just do some menial work for us. Eight months later, the fifth patriarch summoned all of his followers, hey, beruchim abayim. Perfect timing. Wow. Always perfect timing. There's no such thing as not perfect timing. Wow. All right. Double trouble this time. Beruchim abayim. So we're telling the story of this guy named Huinang. So Hui he comes, Nang. It's, it's like uh, Huinang is his name, and it's like a Cinderella story in the beginning here. He comes and they tell him, All right, just don't make too much trouble. Just, you know, you could stay at the monastery, but stay in the back, You know, you know, chop some firewood and and prepare the rice for us, but don't go to the main hall. So eight months later, the fifth patriarch summoned all his followers and proposed a poem contest for his followers to demonstrate the stage of their understanding of the essence of the mind. Right. So there, he's putting on this test for everybody in the whole monastery to see who really understands the essence of mind. He decided to pass down his robe and teachings to the winner of the contest, all right, so the, the, the person who's going to literally take on the mantle or the robe is going to be the one who demonstrates that they understood beyond anyone's understanding. All right, so who would become the sixth patriarch? Shen the leading disciple of the fifth patriarch, composed a stanza, but did not have the courage to present it to the master. Instead, he wrote his stanza on the south corridor wall to remain anonymous one day at midnight. Right, so the, the the head guy who everybody thought was going to be the one to take over, he was too you know timid to present his stanza of his understanding of the true nature of mind. So he wrote it somewhere uh, and didn't want to actually present it. So he's he's trying to be anav. The other monks saw the stanza and commended it, and his stanza of uh, this Shenju guy, his stanza reads as follows: the body is The Bodhi tree, right? The Bodhi tree is the tree under which the Buddha became enlightened. So he's saying the body, your body, is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let that dust collect. So he's giving a very traditional answer as to what does it mean to be a Buddha? It's to constantly polish the mirror of the mind and to realize your body is like that under which the Buddha is always becoming enlightened. It's the the vessel for the mind. And your job is to constantly polish this mind so that no dust will collect on that mirror of your mind. The patriarch, however, was not satisfied with Shenzhu's stanza and pointed out that the poem did not show understanding of his own fundamental nature and essence of mind. He gave Shenju a chance to submit another poem to demonstrate that he had entered the gate of enlightenment, so that he could transmit his robe and the Dharma to Shenju. But the student's mind was agitated and could not, and he could not write one more stanza. All right, so he felt dejected after this first stanza that he wrote was rejected. So he said he kind of took himself out of the running for now. Two days later, the illiterate Huenang, right, the protagonist of our story. So this guy Huenang heard st- the stanza written by Shenzhu, being chanted by a young attendant at the monastery and inquired about the context of the poem. And so he can't himself even read, but he, he got somebody to read it for him. The attendant explained to him the poem contest and the transmission of the robe and the Dharma. Huenang asked to be led to the corridor where he could also pay homage to the stanza. He asked a low-ranking official named Zhang Riang from Zhengzhou to read the, the verse to him and then immediately asked him to write down a stanza that he composed. So he says, ah, I think I figured this out. I have a response stanza to what was written by the original student. So we have a few different versions, but I'll read you the most popular version. So this is his response to the stanza that everybody was commending. So here's what... Um, uh, what he wrote, Nang, what Huynang wrote. Bodhi originally has no tree. The mirror has no stand. The Buddha nature is always clear and pure. Where is there room for dust? So this is very much a response clearly to that original uh, stanza that was written. But he's saying where could there be any dust? There is no separate mind anyway. There's nothing upon which dust can settle. So what happens? The followers who were present were astonished by the work of a southern barbarian. Being cautious of Huanang's status, the patriarch wiped away the stanza and claimed that the author of the stanza had not reached enlightenment. All right. So the patriarch was afraid of the pushback that would be given. Yeah. patriarch is like the guru of the monastery. He's like the head guy. So this guy knows that what he wrote was pretty damn spot on. But he's afraid that this is going to create a revolt almost. However, on the next day, the patriarch secretly went to Huenang's room and asked, should not a seeker after the Dharma risk his life this way? Then he asked, is the rice ready? Huenang responded that the rice was ready and only waiting to be sieved. The patriarch secretly explained the Diamond Sutra to Huenang, and when Huenang heard the phrase, one should activate one's mind so it has no attachment, he was suddenly and completely enlightened, and understood that all things exist in self-nature. The Dharma was passed to Huenang at night, and the patriarch transmitted the doctrine of sudden enlightenment, as well as his robe and bowl to Huenang. So he's giving him the mantle in secret, because he knows that the other people would kind of be jealous and angry that a southern barbarian merited to figure all this out. Take care of yourself. Save. So, sorry, he says to him now, uh, he, he told Huainang, You are now the sixth patriarch. Take care of yourself. Save as many sentient beings as you can and spread the teachings so they will not be lost in the future.
1: Sentient is human.
0: Sentient is any being that has self-consciousness. So oh. it could be some, you know, it's, it's a question if certain types of animals might be, or if everything might be. But the teaching in Buddhism is all sentient beings, whatever that means. So he gives him the mantle. He tells him, save as many sentient beings as you can. He also explained to Huainang that the Dharma was transmitted from mind to mind, Whereas the robe was passed down physically from one patriarch to the next. Hungren instructed the sixth patriarch to leave the monastery before he could be harmed. You can stop at Hawaii and then ride yourself at Hui. Hungren showed Huenang the route to leave the monastery and rode Huenang across the river to assist his escape. Right, so he's physically taking the student across the river. Huynang immediately responded with a clear understanding of Hongren's purpose in doing so, right? So he's understanding a deep thing about this. He's saying and demonstrated that he could ferry to the other shore with the dharma that had been transmitted to him. So this was a very symbolic act. After he demonstrated his understanding, the guru now physically rose him across the river. And he's understanding, wow, that means that the teaching you gave me is going to take me across the river of samsara, towards nirvana, across the river of birth and death, towards the river of enlightenment. The sixth patriarch reached the Taiyu Mountains within two months and realized that hundreds of men were following him, attempting to rob him of the robe and bowl. However, the robe and bowl could not be moved by Huming, who then asked for the transmission of Dharma from Huinang. Right. So almost miraculously, they could not move it physically. All right. And that's probably a very, you know, a deeper idea in there that not anybody can really handle this mantle.
1: That's like that scene from that movie with the sword and the rock. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. One tried to uh, pull it out? Yeah.
0: The Arthur. Yeah, it's also on Thor. But I think it's uh, King Arthur's sword. Right. That I think that's the the original. But great point. It's also on Dragon Ball Z, if, whatever that counts. <laughs> right. So um helped him reach enlightenment and continued on his journey right so even this guy that was trying to move his mantle away from him that that guy too he was assisted in his enlightenment by Huineng right so this story i i really love because especially for the 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 whole center point of it where it's like all these traditional teachings of polish the mind, and sit in zazen, and sit in meditation to perfect your mind. If you only hear about that, you miss the point entirely, which is (laughs) that there is no separate mind, that there is nothing upon which dust can settle, because the mind itself is so pure and so beyond adulteration that there is nothing that you have to polish. And that's a really deep teaching, I think. Uh so well we can we can move on, but if you guys have any questions or comments, we can we can definitely take those. But I think this is something to chew on uh for a little bit where it's I have I have yeah. thoughts
2: pattern that I know in oh, it was like give an analogy or some metaphor or like postulate that something exists and then they'll negate it to distance. So the guy, mm. one guy says, oh, yes. there's three, and then the mirror, and then the guy says, oh, there's really no tree," and there's good and no mirror. Yes. Because you always want to come back to that no thing. Made.
0: But you're making a very good point, which is you need the original one in order to make the counterpoint. Right. And the commentaries on this story actually make that point, where they say, "Hui Nang would not have been able to have this response stanza, if not for the original stanza. So we're not trying to poo-poo, the idea of sitting in, in in meditation or the effort that it requires, but at the same time, it needs to be counterbalanced with the knowledge all along that if you're looking for something, you're not going to find it.
1: Is it almost like if you're looking to meditate, you're never going to meditate?
0: I, I think it's more like if if during meditation... So if you
1: put a definition to the word meditation in your own mind and you say, I want to reach meditation. Mm-hmm.
0: I th- I, th- I think that 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 could be part of it, depending on what it means for you.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, but I think if you're sitting in meditation the whole time and you're looking for something in the meditation, you're looking for some kind of experience or you're looking for some kind of deeper understanding, the looking itself is going to lead you away from it. So they they compare well, it's
2: it to of what you see, that really like these. The whole thing is like. In Buddhism, one of the main ideas is no thingness or mm-hmm. nothingness. Yes, but it's really no thingness. Yes, when like you when you when you see something like I can say there's a book here, there's a table here, there's a tissue box, but ultimately the whole thing is there is no in 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 pure mind mm-hmm. because mind is the thing that divides reality into distinctions.
0: And what you're describing is trying to use the mind analyze the mind and what do they compare it to they say it's like standing in front of a target and shooting arrows away from it trying to hit the target right and and there's we're so conditioned to try and to use effort and it's like there's nothing you have to try to do you as you are the the ordinary mind is the buddha buddha mind yeah
1: so and how does that Let's say someone's on a very, uh, the question is how do you determine unhealthy, mm-hmm. right? You could, uh, from the heroin addict to the person who's uh, lazy and mm-hmm. not doing anything with their life or, I don't know, all the negative things you can imagine. If you tell them you have it all right now, where do, where's the growth mindset? Where does it apply to that? Yeah, it's so- like saying a, a patient, like a, a therapy patient, you're good the way you are. It's I'm funny because
0: no no there, there's always this question. You know, no, for sure. I know exactly what you're saying. And I you have know, the same question. Solve, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an inevitable question every time we discuss this. It's, and yeah. my personal philosophy is that the reason the person ended up in the place that they're in is because of the mindset that we're discussing, which is always seeking for more. But once you deprogram that, you can get out of that cycle of endlessly looking for the next high or endlessly looking for a certain experience or a certain depth that you think you don't already have. And the irony is once you give the person the tools to be present and so at peace in the now, I think naturally and in a very natural way, he will grow in the way that you and I talk about growth.
1: I hear you completely. It just doesn't I don't It's hard for it to click with me because it's like saying uh, someone, someone who of uh, any bad habit, eats a lot of sugar. Yeah, yeah. Right, but but I'm good the way I am. how is that mindset going to affect something like that, or 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 saying because I, if I you think about bit, so yeah, not, what are you looking yeah, yeah, for? No. I have everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Which I do have everything. I agree with that. I'm I not, think not, I think you're naturally I'm, gonna want you know to do good things. Have, but yeah, I feel you. I agree. So, yeah, yeah.
2: So, let like, you can get from like also from Asian because I think it's like doing what while not doing. For example, the book Zen and the Art of uh, archery. archery, Zen and Motorcycle making two different books. But the main idea is like to get into this state or like a flow state where you're you're doing something, but you're in such connection with being that there's no thing that you're doing. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. it's like when you're doing the when you you'll have the best aim when you're in that state or you play the best basketball when you're in a flow state you know you don't even think that i'm playing basketball right now you're you're when you're making all those shots and whatever you're in that group that's like when you're in the the, no thingness kind of state of mind you're not really thinking oh i have the ball in my hand you're less self-conscious and like it's like that kind of state that you want to be in so it's not about not there's not that it's not necessarily that you have nothing to do it but just that when you do something just know there is no thing that
1: you are doing in a way that's yeah. a great explanation. Yeah, no, we, it's beautiful, and I love the growth so thing. But to get into that state of flow, you have to have thought, "I want to play basketball." Or it's it's what brought you there. How does it? How does it blend with a growth mindset, or does it contradict with a growth? Mindset?
0: I don't think it has to contradict in any way, and I think that you you will naturally want to grow in the, in layman's terms, grow. But it'll be the outward appearance of growth with the inner feeling of I've already arrived. Got it. That's the irony of it. And that's it's not true. something that could really be put into words, but that's my best explanation. I can't into words because I'm listening. Because
1: yeah. I, I resonate so much with yeah, it yeah, the yeah. present, but then I'm like, so I heard someone say, but like someone said this comment to me, like, oh, yeah, but I'm good at exactly way I am. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, are they going to ever... The point of
0: this not? is not as an excuse to be complacent and not exactly. and as, a, as an excuse. Complacency and, and I, I think, think complacency is a is really stemming from... A lack of real, true, good feeling about where you're at now. Because if you really were at peace with where you're at now, you wouldn't have to say the words, I'm perfect the way I am. The only reason you're saying the words to reassure yourself is because you know that you're not at peace.
1: You know the book, The Unearthed Soul by Michael Singer? Yes. Okay. Untethered. Untethered Soul. Untethered Soul. Yeah. It just pieced together the whole book. for Wow. Know. I'm glad. Because he went from being... Somebody that was thriving for business, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He went to school and learned computing. Yeah. So. And then went on some sort of sabbatical. Yeah. Right to Mexico and started meditating. Mm-hmm. And his meditation led him to a billion dollar success.
0: It's an amazing but thing. Not
1: because he was looking for it, mm-hmm. it just came
0: to him. He that's a great example. It. And then so. at the end, yeah. Yeah. You should read the book. I love Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Anyway.
3: As far as the, uh, I mean, if someone's happy with how they are, they're obviously not going to take up medication because they're not seeking anything. So I don't even understand what what the issue is. The whole, the only people seeking meditation or or enlightenment, you know, I mean, usually you feel you feel like there's something missing or something un uh, unfulfilling in your life or well, you know, I, I whatever. I believe-
0: I agree that here in the West, you know, when it becomes something that like, you know, you you are struggling in your life and then you take upon yourself meditation in order to deal with that, you're for sure correct. But I think the the irony is that especially in the East, but also for some people, I think once you get to a certain place in the West, you realize that you're meditating. It might start off like, it starts off, you know, for the purposes of secondary gain. But then once you meditate enough, you get to this place of realizing, I'm meditating this way, not because I am seeking something, but I sit as such, because this is the way that the Buddha sits. That's the key. And so, so let's let's yeah, actually then you already but
3: then you, already, but then you yeah. already found something at that point. I don't know. I don't think people learn yeah. something for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes maybe you're just curious. You know, maybe it's not a, a, a real d- defect, you know, that you're trying to uh, to accomplish, but you're still, you know, you you're really still kind of curious. You're still, your mind is, is saying, you know, maybe I, I, I need something a little bit different to be thinking about or focusing on. It's definitely about self-growth. I don't really see meditation or this uh, enlightenment uh, not being, I mean, you've got to get in touch with with your your insides, you know, yeah. to do that.
0: Sure. And I think there's stages. I think, like you're pointing out, there's stages for each individual. And the irony is, um, once you get to a certain point, Baruch Abba ID, so so happy to see you and, and to be back here learning together. Good timing. Excellent. Um thanks, Of course. So so to your point, Dr. Nasser, I'll I'll just say this, which is I think you you definitely start off that way, like you're describing, but you do very often see that. The point of Buddhism is once you get across the river, put down the raft. So Buddhism is to help you do something in a way to get across that river. But once you do get across the river, it's how do I not hold the raft on my back the rest of my life? How do I use this now, now that I'm there, how do I just be there? But it's 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 definitely an ongoing discussion because not something we could really put into words. But here, let's let's take another angle at this. So this one's called the Mirror of Essential Points by Neoshul Ken Rinpoche. So I, you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of these beautiful uh, with instrumental music and some ancient Buddhist texts and also modern Buddhist texts. I listen to them on the train, and I really just have these unbelievable experiences. And this is one of them. Um, so the this is somebody who lived, I think, in 1982. You know, he wrote this. Uh, it's a letter of praise of emptiness from Jamyang Dorji to his mother. He says, I pay homage at the lotus feet of Tenpei Niyama, who is inseparable from Lord Longchen Rambanj, and who perceives the natural state of emptiness, of the ocean-like infinity of things. A letter of advice I offer to you, my noble mother, Paltsam. Listen for a while without distraction. Staying here, Without discomfort, I am at ease and free from from worries in a state of joyful mind. Are you well yourself, my mother? Here in a country in the West, there are many red and white-skinned people. They have all kinds of magic and sights, like flying through the skies and moving like fish in the water. Having mastery over the four elements, they compete in displaying miracles. With thousands of beautiful colors. There are innumerable spectacles like designs of rainbow colors. But like a mere dream when examined. They are but the mistaken perceptions of mind. All activities are like the games children play. If started, they can never be finished. They are only completed once you let them be. Like castles made of sand. But that is not the whole story. All the phenomena of samsara and nirvana, although thought to be permanent, do not last. When examined, they are but empty forms. They appear without existence. Although unreal, they are thought to be real. But like an illusion when examined, they are found to be unreal. Look outward at the perceived objects. You can do this right now. Like water in a mirage, they are more delusive than delusion. Unreal like a dream or a magical apparition, they resemble a rainbow or the reflection of the moon. Look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined, but when examined, there is nothing to it. Appearing without existing, it is nothing but empty.
2: I think when you say nothing, yeah. especially in the Buddhist context, it means no thing. Like, because it's saying exactly like there. Yes, and he keeps on trying to emphasize. Essentially, what does what it what does it help you do when you recognize that there's no objects or that there's no this? That everything is really one. And
0: everything is nothing. Which is one exactly because everything implies that there are no separate things. There are no things. Agreed. Right. Agreed.
2: Right. And the the delusion. Yes, this, there being a tissue box right there is
0: the discriminating very, faculty of the mind right, using the sword of the mind, as they say, to cut reality into little chunks, even though that doesn't represent real reality, because real reality only exists in total. Right. Right. Very good. And in, in it's in totality. Total. I'm a little advanced in my lexicon. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> it cannot be identified. You cannot say that's it. Because it is evanescent and elusive like mist. Look at whatever appears in any of the ten directions. No matter how it manifests, the thing in itself, its very nature, is the sky-like nature of the mind. Beyond the projection and the dissolution of thought and concept. Everything has the nature of being empty. When the empty looks at the empty, who is there to look at something empty? As it is illusion looking at illusion and delusion watching delusion. What is the use of many classifications such as empty and not empty? All right. So he's pointing out exactly what all of you have been saying this entire time. Which is, if we're already pointing out that we're, we are just illusion looking at illusion or delusion looking at delusion. Then what's the point of even calling it empty or not empty or nothing or everything? And this is exactly the point, which is we don't do this class. We don't do this experience in order to give you the answer. We think about things and we talk about things, as I always try to say, to unravel our egoic complexes in order to let them settle. And once they settle, the, the water is extremely serene and it can reflect the light of the moon. Perfectly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the <is> non-existent.
0: <clears throat> We're playing the game again. I don't even know how to answer that. That's it's a great not, question. Not a <laughs> you're, but you're right. But the point is, you're also right. It's you're 100% right. But at the same time, you're 100% wrong. Enough. Exactly.
2: There's a, there's a difference between, for example, when you close your eyes and you go to sleep, everything continues to exist. And what, wrong. But you're... But the
0: thing is But you're not there to perceive it.
2: You're also the words that, that he's using in the teaching. For example, even in the first story, we had the, the story by the master and then the story by the, the barbarian. Yeah. They they have to use words and words
0: Yes. By words their- by their by their very essence are cutting reality.
2: Right. It's it's cutting reality. And we already
0: know that the second we start speaking we're not talking about reality, and yet we do it anyway.
2: Well, we're talking about reality but we're not where we're putting a cover over reality exactly we're talking and by talking about reality and and even the teaching itself when it was just saying that the the perceptions of, of different objects is empty mm-hmm. he even then has to then negate the notion of emptiness. Yes. Because and that's the same exact thing that happened, and exactly what I was saying. I Every
0: single time, it's going to happen.
2: So that means that the it's teaching gonna itself, the teaching itself is true. But, but
0: then you get, then you put it down, you let you it go. Don't so want, the way I don't
2: believe in the teaching too
0: much. The way that I co- yeah. that I like the another analogy I like to give is like a rocket ship. You know, when the rocket ship leaves the stratosphere or whatever level of the atmosphere, and then it it lets go of the rocket that led it into the stratosphere. And it just continues on in and of itself, but it lets go of that which propelled it to that point. So you have to have that ability in Zen and in meditation and in all of this.
2: And then the barbarian would say, but there is no
1: rocket for exactly. And and
0: that's what you realize when you when you get there. You realize there was no there was nothing propelling and there was nothing to be propelled.
1: It almost seems like it's like a state of consciousness or awareness or uh, there's no words to describe. Yeah. It's
0: just me. We're gonna we're gonna jump to Alan Watson a minute, but that's the point. Is 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 <laughs> that's why it's it's like God is the ultimate joker. Nike. Okay, ID. I know you missed it, man. I missed it too, and I missed you.
4: I missed you too. <laughs> I could yeah. use you. To, I could use you tonight. That's why I jumped on.
0: 100. ID. I'm so happy, man. Really, we're gonna we're gonna get very Jewish tonight. Also, we're gonna get Hebe G B in
4: a minute. All right. I could use <laughs> I for my refuah, I could use
0: 100%. I do. I'm so happy you're, you're feeling better. Really? Baruch Hashem. Thank you. Alhamdulillah.
4: So, uh, so, so yeah. I, just, I just want to jump in. So, two things. Yeah. So, all these motivational or, you know, all these, whatever you want to call them, uh thought leaders. Sure. Oh. I like to call them thought leaders to be safe. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, the other day I watched uh, my son Adam is Huge fan of Tony Robbins. Mm, yes, he's, and he's been to his live event four day events. You know, twenty four hours a day. So wow. he did a he did a live free event the other day, virtual, mm. and I watched it three days in a row, three hours a day. Wow. Yeah, and the guy was totally ima- two million people watching it, Mikey. Two oh. million watching it. And and he was phenomenal, but let's say he's Adams. Tony Robbins is Adams' guy. Wayne Dyer is my guy. You have the Dow. You have this. You have the Rambam,
0: you have- Don't get me wrong. Well, you know when I'm in, in medical school, or, or you know when I was studying for the MCAT, I was listening to like Les Brown every day. When I was studying for right. boards, I'm listening to like David Goggins and Joe Rogan, all these guys. So uh, would you say that I needed, that- to, oh. I needed to,
4: and Jordan Peterson, whoever it is. Right. So would you say all these guys are really parallel or do you think that the search is infinite or do you ever arrive?
0: I th- I think this is an amazing point because because I agree with you that we we need sometimes when we, there's avodah la'asot, when there's stuff to accomplish, we need the drive. We need the guy that's not going to talk about, you know, the emptiness necessarily in that moment. We probably need somebody to light a fire on their behind and say, go and get what you need. Go save the princess. Go slay the dragon. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. We, we need that. I need that. I can't right. listen to, to just Zen meditation if I need to go out and battle for something. Right. But at the same time, I don't think that that means that I need to abandon Zen. So this is the point is that I think Zen infuses everything we do. So while I'm listening to Alan Watts, Sorry, or while I'm listening to Jordan Peterson, while I'm listening to a David Goggins or a Tony Robbins, I can listen mindfully and notice how excited I'm getting and notice how motivated I'm getting. Just like I notice anything else. It's really just about being present. That's why I tell people Zen is not telling you what to do. It's telling you whatever you're doing, notice it. Also,
2: there's, there's a distinction between intuitionism and analytical. Yes. Mind, so, so the, the intuition intuitionism is very much like you're not using the analytical mind Mm -hmm. to do what you're doing it's kind of happening intuitively yes you could watch joe rogan you could watch uh jordan peterson and whatever it is and hear what they're saying and and, and experience it in a way Mm
0: -hmm.
2: where you're not allowing you can still be analytical,
0: intuitive. Like yes, it naturally, it just happens naturally. It's this. It's so immediate. It's this. Like they compare it to like a Flintstone hitting the other Flintstone. It doesn't think before creating the spark. Happens
1: automatically.
0: Exactly, or exactly and of itself. So exactly like you're saying, and when you the geese. You just have to listen. You just okay, have to notice. Uh, I love it. I love it. That's right. And and when the geese are flying over the water, the water doesn't take a second to analyze and think, should I reflect or not? It just reflects it. So Zen doesn't mean don't go to the movies. It just means pay attention. Whatever you're doing. And I wouldn't encourage you to do evil things because according to a lot of the you know, the Noble Eightfold Path and a lot of these things, those things will Take away your ability to focus, but you within reason can say, all right, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to be doing, and I'm going to try to notice whatever I'm doing. And sometimes that includes evil things, but, you know, the more you try to convince yourself that you're not doing evil or justified or whatever, the worse it will be. So just notice I'm doing an evil thing right now. Let that go and then come back to the path. All right. So so I think uh, let's, let's pause here with this. Um, ID, you had another point? No, I'm good. Amazing because you, you, I, everyone today, tonight is participating so perfectly, in my opinion. It's not even an opinion, it's just, it just is the way it is. And it's, I love the, the symphony that we're creating tonight because we're, we're, we all feel this. We all feel the two poles of it. And when Zen is put in one way, we, we, we need to react with the other pole. And when it's put in the other way, we need to react with the other pole. And it's a constant ping pong game. And that's why we began with the story of, the first guy made his stanza, and then Hui Nang responded with his stanza. But you needed the first one for the second one to be there. We constantly play this game with each other and with our, with ourselves. It's like a thermostat that wants to be at 71. It needs to go a little bit too high and then a little bit too low and then just right. And that's what we're constantly doing all the time, is balancing between
4: the masculine and the feminine and the yin and the yang all the time. Yeah. The, the beautiful thing about all these guys is that their message is is there's there's no time zone on their message. It's infinite. It works forever. It's like if I I listen to Dyer for forty years, yeah, and, and everything he says has so much impact. Like his key thing is like you talk about you know getting to a goal or whatever. His th- is you'll see it when you believe it. Hmm.
0: You know? I love you know? it.
4: Yeah, you know,
0: uh, you know. Yeah, as we always quote when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. That's his
4: classic. Yeah, that's the best. His, the
0: best. Yeah,
4: no. Then he also says, Everybody's waiting for a miracle. I think he quoted Whitman or one of the great guys, everybody's waiting for a miracle. You don't understand that every second of your life is a miracle.
0: That's Zen, that's literally Zen. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Is that everything is a miracle? In this moment. It's a way of putting it. I mean, somebody might say, well, then nothing is a miracle. And that's true, too. But at the same time, everything is a miracle if you experience it that way. Yeah. Every moment.
1: If you're looking at a landscape and you're only looking at one little part here and one little part here. You can't see the whole thing. That's right. I got you. That just to be in the whole landscape all the time. And
0: the whole landscape begs the question of why is there something rather than nothing in every moment? And that's what Rabbi Joshua Heschel would okay. call uh. radical amazement. Mike,
4: Mikey, i reading Maimonides' books about, about. I have a book about Maimonides, so maybe you could, or the guys on, on you know, on the screen or in the class, yeah. they talk about will versus wisdom. Mm-hmm. So really, so what does that mean? That you have the will to do it, or you the does the wisdom supersede the will, or is it in conjunction with the will? Mm. What's your thought? When it
0: comes to wisdom, I'll say one thing, which is. My humble understanding of a lot of the Zen stuff, at least, and also with Da'at Hashem and Judaism and Harambam. Right. That wisdom is what they call in Zen prajna. It comes from a clear understanding of all that is. When you have this very, very clear understanding, and that's not a moralistic thing. That's just like spiritual ophthalmology. The ability to see things clearly in their totality, that is prajna. And the word prajna paramita means the diamond that cuts through illusion when you see everything all at once very clearly. But right. the key is the natural consequence of prajna is always karuna, is always ultimate compassion for all things and all beings. And that's totally natural. You don't have to try to be compassionate. And I think that's where the will comes in. That's the, the other part of your question, which is once you have ultimate wisdom. Your will is going to naturally align with the will of God, do uh-huh. things that are in line with karuna, with compassion, with hesed. I think that's why with the sefirot it starts with keted and the wisdom of the crown, and it goes to hakhaman bina still with wisdom, and then it, it goes into all these other things with hesed and gevura, and that's all the compassion that is flowing from the wisdom.
2: In in it gives a great analogy for uh, the difference between um and and, and, and yeah. Da'at. Yeah. It basically says um, the level of is like water, mm-hmm. undifferentiated, and then bina and da'at is it's uh, so it's basically pipes that channel the water. Yes. And I forgot which one is which, but I think bina is the like the substance mm-hmm. of the pipes, and then the daat.
1: Is the is the path of the border oh, beautiful, all right, all right,
4: nice, nice. No, it said it said in Zohar, in one of the things of one of the books I read, it said it was a beautiful thing. I read it to you a couple of times, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Bina are, are two people that, that never leave each other. Mm.
0: Uh, and Chokhama is like the male element, Bina is like the female element, and they both. Mm-hmm. kind of sort to create the reality that we know but you need sun both the like the sun and the moon or like you need the light of that is generated by one to be reflected and there's no there's the potential and the actual the sperm and the egg they are okay. both needed to create reality in this moment so in i yeah
2: is water understanding represents the pipes that channel it
0: beautiful uh, because it, it it contains it like the egg contains the sperm
2: Wisdom represents nonverbal thought while understanding is its verbalizations. Wisdom and understanding are seen as being male and female respectively. Women is, wisdom is seen as father, understanding as mother. Um great.
0: You know what, so, so let's let's jump to Alan Watts quick and then we'll get to the Zohar, because you guys are yearning for it. Let's do a very quick Alan Watts. Um before the Alan Watts, sure. what I meant
1: was yeah. like the moon is the nurturing. You sleep at night. Ah, uh, beautiful. In the day, the sun is what gives you the strength. And it powers everything. And it powers absolutely everything. Beautiful. Amazing. So everything has to have a 100%. It
0: has a to nurture have
1: nurture and the power giver.
0: Absolutely. Amen. A father and a mother, if you will. For sure. Um, So he's, he's talking a lot about what we're saying here. He's saying uh, the hypocrites are those people who regard as good whatever the world claims is good and regard as right whatever the world claims is right. When you tell them that they are men of Dao, then their countenance has changed with satisfaction when you call them hypocrites. Then they look displeased. All their lives they call themselves men of Dao, and all their lives they remain hypocrites. They know how to give a good speech and tell appropriate anecdotes in order to attract the crowd, right? So this is the, the trap that I could fall into if I know how to give a good speech. Am I really a man of Dao, or am I doing this just for the sake of the praise? That's Don't
2: exactly the same thing, like the, the hypocrites in uh, in the phrase, do as they say that is as they yes. from, from Christianity, Exactly, where they call the teachers.
0: Exactly. Good. But from the very beginning to the very end, they do not know what it's all about. They put on the proper garb and dress in the proper colors and put on decorous appearance in order to make themselves popular, but refuse to admit they're hypocrites. Torn. Right? So, but this explanation of the man who is stupid in countenance and appearance and is wandering about as if he has lost his way and doesn't know anything. Of course, it's based on the text in Lao Tzu where he says... The people of the world are merrymaking as if partaking of the sacrificial feasts, as if mounting the terraced in spring. I alone am mild, like one unemployed, like an newborn babe that cannot yet smile, unattra- unattached, like one without a home. The people of the world have enough and despair, but I am like one left out. My heart must be that of a fool, in the muddled, nebulous, the vulgar, unknowing, luminous. I alone am Tao, confused. Right? So the reason I bring this up again is we've read this before, but I think a big part of this is to notice that it it uncouples the the normal dopaminergic thing that's going on for us. So usually your pleasure principle is telling you, seek out praise and push away blame. But once you become so self-fulfilled and self-sufficient in this manner and so at peace in and of yourself, you might appear from the outside like a fool because you're just floating around. You're just chilling. You're like cloud water you're just drifting like the cloud and flowing like water but the point is that's not even going to bother you because you're already with it you're already there All right, so let's let's jump to the Zod and we'll 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 continue this i know there's a lot more to discuss in that regard uh but let's jump to the Zod because uh i have just i really want to finish this section cuz it's so beautiful and it really makes me cry every time i read this um so we left off last time that uh, Rabbi Abba, and Rabbi al-Azar were still reeling from the beautiful experience they had with uh, Rabbi Haminun and now Rabbi Abba ve is going to say as follows: Manoah said to his wife, Manoah, the f- the mother of Shimshon said to his wife, "We will surely die, for for we have seen God." Right. So now that they have seen the vision of Rab Haminun who they thought was this, was this Arab caravan or this Arab cab driver. Now that they've seen him, they're, they're like, what if we're like Manoach? What if we should be afraid that we're going to die after having seen an angel? Even though Manoach did not know its nature, he said, since it is written, no, no human shall see me and live. And we certainly have seen, so we will surely die. As for us, we have seen and attained this light without let this light moving with us, yet we are still alive. For the blessed Holy One who sent Him him to us to reveal mysteries of wisdom, happy is our share. Okay, so they're like, we're not going to die, it seems, and we're very fortunate that we had this wisdom. They went on. They reached a certain mountain as the sun was inclining. The branches of the tree on the mountain began lashing one another, emitting a song. As they were walking, they heard a resounding voice proclaim, Holy sons of God! dispersed among the living of this world, right? And that's actually a reference to the, the souls like that of Rabbi himenunasa, that are enlightening people who are still alive, right? So this voice is proclaiming, Luminous lamps, initiates of the academy, assemble at your places to delight with your Lord in Torah. They were frightened, stood in place, then sat down. Meanwhile, a voice called out as before, proclaiming mighty boulders, towering hammers, Behold the Master of Colors, embroidered in figures, standing on a dais. All right. So this is a reference to a lot of different things. Uh, the towering hammers are a reference to uh, Rabbi Hanan ben Zakai, the Master of Colors, to Metatron, one of the head angels, um, and it's it's just this very beautiful cacophony of different heavenly figures that are being invoked here. Enter and assemble. That moment, they heard the branches of the trees resounding intensely, proclaiming, Call Adonai Shover Arazim, the voice of Yodke Vavke, break cedars. Rabbi Al Azan, Rabbi Abba fell on their faces, immense fear falling upon them. They rose hastily, went on, and heard nothing. Leaving the mountain, they walked on. All right. So they just had this very intense mystical experience together. And it's very reminiscent, actually, if you remember when we were discussing the 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 part of the Mishnah that was talking about Arba'anich Suba Pardes, right before that we had a lot of hachamim that were having a very similar experience on their way, experiencing the trees, proclaiming and singing to God. So let's see how the story continues. Upon reaching the house of Rabbi Yose, son of Rabbi Shimon ben Lekonya. They saw Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and rejoiced. Note, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has already died. And yet, clearly they are in a mystical experience because they are seeing him, quote unquote, in the flesh. And this is the father, of course, of Rabbi al Azhar. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is his name. Of course, he's one of the main people we've been talking about. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai rejoiced, saying to them, Indeed, you have traversed a path of heavenly miracles and signs. For I was just now sleeping, and I saw you and Benayahu Ben Yehoyada, who is sending you two crowns by the hand of a certain old man to crown you. Right, so Rabbi Bar Yochai was saying, I was sleeping, ya'ani, I was dead. But I had a vision from the dead of Benayahu Ben Yehoyada, who we said is a stand-in for Rav Sava, right? And he says, I saw him sending two crowns to you, two new teachings of Torah, one about Benayahu Ben Yehoyada, and the other one about Shabbat, which we've discussed in the previous weeks. So he says, I witnessed that, he, that you were being taught this unbelievable teaching from Shammayim. This was certainly a path of the blessed Holy One of Akadosh Baruch Hu. Further, I see your faces transfigured. He says, I see in your faces that you're different. Similar probably to Moshe Rabbeinu, whose face was glowing. The says, said, well, well have you said, a sage is preferable to a prophet, hacham adif min navi, we see this uh, in the statement of Amemar and Baba Batra, they say, a sage is preferable to a navi. right? And it's trying to emphasize that Abishamon's visionary power is unrivaled. It's used in the Gemara, in terms of halachic power, because the prowess of halacha is in the hands of the hacham, not in the hands of an avi, but here it's used even more so, like the hacham, Rabbi Shimon, his visionary power, is unrivaled. Rabbi Azad approached, placed his head between the knees of his father, and told him what happened. All right. so usually, in ancient Jewish meditation, a form of meditation, was to put one's own head, in between one's own knees, for a st- for, in order to achieve a state of ecstatic experience. But here, Rabbi Al-Azad is putting his head between the knees of his own father. And you can think about how deeply beautiful and meaningful and symbolic that is in the context of a mystical experience. And who is his father? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Can't get better than that. So it's like somebody taking mushrooms and imagining themselves, putting themselves at the feet or in between the legs of their father and saying, Dad, teach me. And he told his father what happened. The Shimon was frightened and wept. The Shimon Bar himself was so overwhelmed by the story that his son told him that he starts crying. And by the way, in the previous weeks we've discussed the importance of the son saving or rescuing their father like Abraham Avinu did for Terah by Abraham going on that journey courageously towards Edis Kanaan that his father had begun and Lehabdi in the case of Pinocchio going down and rescuing his father from chaos. So, in a way, here, after the death of Rabbi Shimon, his son is continuing on his legacy. And what does Rabbi Shimon say? Uh Yodke Vavke, he said, I heard what you have made, what you have made heard. I am awed. He quotes this from Habakkuk. This verse was spoken by Habakkuk when he saw that his death and was restored to life by Elisha. So now he's going to say, Elisha famously did CPR or somehow miraculously saved the son of an Isha Shunamit in Melachim. Who was that person? It was actually Habakkuk Hanavi, according to this. Why? Why was he named Habakkuk? Because it is written, at this time next year, you will be hoveket, embracing a son. The word habakkuk from the word hovek, to to embrace, to hug. He was the son of the Shunamit. He was that guy that was um, brought back to life in Melachim. Furthermore, there were two embracings. One by his mother, one by Elisha, as is written. He placed his mouth on his mouth. I have discovered in the book of King Solomon, right? So there's this this library that we have lost, but they're they're constantly quoting from in the Zohar. He says, I discovered in the book of King Solomon, he inscribed on him, right? So Elisha, uh, sorry, who inscribed on who? The Elisha inscribed on Habakkuk, in words, the engraved name of 72 names, right? So he engraved the 72 names of God, Onto the body of Habakkuk. What does this mean? For the letters of the alphabet that his father had originally inscribed on him flew away from him when he died. Right? So there's this midrash that's saying Habakkuk had on himself the letters written by his father upon him. And that almost represents the love and the hope and the legacy of the father upon the son. Right? It's exactly like we're talking about with Abraham, like Pino- with Pinocchio. Habakkuk is unfortunately. An orphan, but his father had written the names of God upon his body. And now, after his father died, those letters flew away, and he was and and that's why Habakkuk was at at risk of dying. Right? When you lose the tradition of your father, how are you ever going to survive in this world? It takes an Elisha to now remind Habakkuk who he really is. Now that Elisha embraced him, he inscribed on him all those letters of the seventy-two names. The letters of these 72 engraved names are 216 letters, all of which Elisha inscribed with his breath to restore him to life through the letters of the 72 names. He called them Habakkuk, a name fulfilling all sides, fulfilling embracings as explained, and fulfilling the mystery of the 216 letters of the Holy Name. Right? What's the gematria of Habakkuk? 216. Why 216? Well, 216 is 72 times 3. It's the 72... Letter names of God, written three times. Uh, he was revived with words, restoring his spirit, and with letters, reviving his Im- entire body enduringly. Right? So, with the words, you, in order to have the spirit, in order to have spiritual potency, you need words. You need a pattern. You need a meaning.
2: Also but the... Yeah. ...is the only... If you have a cube with the uh, with side length six, yeah, the the surface area and the volume is equal. It's the only
0: one. Amazing. It's a it's a mathematical uh, almost like a perfect oops, number. Oops.
2: Yeah, like the, the,
0: no, that's So so in order the point here is in order to have meaning and a pattern, you need words. But with letters, the two hundred sixty individual letters are necessary only for restoring the body. I think what this means is the body is just as it is in a concrete way, but the spirit, the, the meaning that a person lives their life by is needed to be a meaningful explanation of what the words mean. Reviving his entire body enduringly. So he was called Habakkuk. He was the one who was embraced. It is It was he who said, Kevavke, I heard what you have made. Heard, I am awed. I heard what happened to me, my tasting of that world. He said, I heard about my own death and I am frightened. And then, obviously, he was revived by Elisha. He began begging for compassion for his soul, exclaiming, Yod Vavka, your action that you did for me in the midst of years. Hayehu may its life be. Hayehu, like Hayav, its life. Right? So this was almost his prayer. Like, may my life be. Right? After I'm dead, now may my life be. Whoever is bound to those primordial years, life is bound to him. Convey it in the midst of years. Convey it to that level that has no life at all. Okay, so let's pause there. This is all very cryptic stuff. Uh, what I make of it is is or what this what this commentary is making of it is that here the phrase refers to sefirot from chesed through Yesod flowing into shekhinah. They are also the six primordial days of the week culminating in Shabbat. All right, so his experience of coming back from the dead, Habakkuk, was like the the culmination of the six days of creation into Shabbat. And the culmination of the upper six Sefirot through into Shekhinah, or sorry, the lower six Sefirot through into Shekhinah, creating the physical body. Some really deep teaching. Now, this is the point that I really wanted to get to. Rabbi On wept and said, From what I have heard, I too am afraid of the HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Raising his hands above his head, he exclaimed, What a privilege that you saw to have asava, radiance of Torah face to face. I was not so privileged. He's telling his son, what is the khut you had to see Harav Haminun So now Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, in their vision, he fell on his face and saw him. Who? He saw Harav Haminun Asava After just saying, I never saw him, now he sees him. He sees him uprooting mountains. Oker Harim. Right? And this we know from the Gemara was a reference to Rabbah Bar Nahmani. Because of his sharpness of his mind. Right? So he saw physically. Rabbi Minunah Salva, Uprooting mountains. Kindling, kindling lights in the palace of King Mashiach. And also known in the, in the Zohar as the bird's nest. Uh, he said to him. Rabbi. In that world you will be neighbors. Empowered masters. In the presence of the blessed Holy One. So. The vision that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is having here is that Rabbi Hemun Rasava is telling him as he's uprooting these mountains and as he's kindling kindling the lights in the house of the Mashiach, he's saying, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, I want you to know. You've never seen me until now. Now you're seeing me and I want you to know you're going to be side by side with the Mashiach in Olam Habba, lighting the candles in the Bet HaMikdash on high. From that day on, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai called Rabbi Al-Azad, his son, and Rabbi Abba, his friend, Peniel, face of God. As is said, for I have seen God face to face. Ki ra'iti Elohim panim el-panim batinnazil nafshi. So now from this day on, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai called Rabbi Al-Azad and Rabbi Abba, Peniel. Or really, in in a play on words here, Peniel. He says, I see now that you are the faces of God. So I, re- I really love that because it shows you that even a guy like Rabbi Shimon Bar-Ohai has more, has more that he wants to learn and, and, and more that he wants to be closer to God. And I think this is so beautiful to end with because we, we started off with everything as it is is perfect. And yet we have this intuition that unless we strive towards God And there is such a thing as effortless effort. It's still effort. It could be effortless effort. You have to allow for the mystical experiences to flow in. But there's there's still effort involved. And that's what we see from these great, great hachamim. And we can be happy for it. That he was able after all these years to achieve a level of knowledge and intimacy with with God that he knows is only going to keep on deepening. And that's part of our experience. We don't want to ever really get there. We want to feel that we are there's even more love and more growth towards God and that's a very Jewish thing, I think
4: you think Mikey because he was in the cave, he had total seclusion that he had that ability to connect so soak so, so he be I think there's no doubt I think there's no doubt that
0: a guy like that who after that many years of silent meditation man, it's got to do something
4: to you that was his connection, yeah
0: exactly. I love you guys. Really? What a beautiful class. I love uh, everyone's participation was the highlight for me today. So great.
4: Thanks, Mikey. Awesome. Great, great to
0: speak much You you so much. You. You're the best. I'm so happy you're feeling thank well. You. Thank you. You made my, I needed Probably this tonight. Every Shabbat, every week we should be learning together Bezat Hashem in good health and happiness. Okay. Thank you.
4: Have a great All week, right. everybody. Thank you,
3: everybody.
4: I'll see thank you thank later. You. Bye.